We will be interviewing some very special people who are part of this project. Today we have with us on the interviewing side four of our ambassadors, Haley, Kaylin, Muna, and myself, Emily. And we are going to be interviewing the author of Commander the Faithful, John Kaiser and Matt Peterson. I know we've had some stories from our ambassadors of who we are and why we're here. So can you all... Just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey, starting with you, John. Well, there's a short and long version, and I guess I should start with the short version because uh, there are a lot of pieces to this. But I guess I could say that the most fundamental reason I got interested in um, the subject was a sabbatical in France. It's actually kind of a love story. And the love story was with a beautiful woman by the name of La Belle France. After spending a year there with my wife and two kids, we had a sabbatical year, go into a different culture and breathe some different air and learn about other places. It was there that I had my first encounters with Muslims, Arabs. I'd never really met an Arab, had an Arab friend or even acquaintance. And I also was curious about Islam for a number of reasons. This is the 90s. Osama had sort of made his... uh, debut on the stage, and uh, everybody was talking about, you know, the new communist threat, except this was an Islamic threat. And uh, so I uh, was interested in getting to meet Muslims, and there are a lot of them in the south of France. Uh, And what I found out was how incredibly ignorant I was, and how unbelievably non-threatening I thought Islam was based on what people told me, at least as far as the religion was concerned. France is largely Catholic. I became part of a a discussion group with the local parish priest and and some other co-religionists who uh, called upon to talk about, uh, have an ecumenical discussion about matters of faith. And I had thought, well, okay, it'll be interesting. I'll learn about the Jews, and I'll learn about the Christians, and I'll learn more about the Muslims and what they believe. And then I found out that discussions actually only among Christians because they have enough problems as it is figuring out how to live together. So the Christian-Muslim part never really materialized, but nevertheless, because of where I was living, I did end up getting to know a lot of uh, Arabs and finding out that uh, essentially, the way I look at it, Islam is essentially the same as Catholicism with an extra profit thrown in, (laughs) that uh, with the exception of uh, how they feel about the Trinity, what's a big deal? What do Christians believe in? What do Muslims believe in? Basically the same thing, right? Monotheism, fasting, prayer, charity, taking a pilgrimage. Protestants maybe don't do as much as Catholics. And then when I found out that Muslims probably have a higher opinion in general, if I made a broad 
hazardous, broad estimation, are probably more respectful of Jesus than most Christians. Some Muslims will say Jesus is actually, you know, the most important of all the prophets because Jesus was the only prophet who was without sin. And Jesus has to come back for Judgment Day. And I named my boys after Jesus, Isa, very common name. And he was born of a virgin. So, I mean, the whole storyline is actually totally Christian, which is why Islam was considered a heresy, a Christian heresy, well up into the, I think, the 20th century. And so from a standpoint of theology, I didn't see anything there that made me worried, particularly since I've never been particularly religious. In fact, I don't even know what it means to be religious. And a lot of it is phony. And I think the only thing that really matters is how you treat people. Whatever you call yourself, in the end, it's how do you treat people? How do you treat nature? How do you treat animals? How do you treat God's creation? So, end of the year in, uh, in France, I liked France a lot, still do, and was looking for an excuse to go back and get connected, stay connected. And that's when I learned about these uh, monks who've been in Algeria since the 1840s, when the French were trying to figure out what they wanted to do with this new colony that hadn't yet become a colony stay, leave, get out of the way. They decided that one of the problems they were having in subduing the Arabs was the Arabs thought, these French are weird people, you know, they don't pray, they don't have mosques, they, they must be atheists, sort of the way we thought about the communists in those days. Some of the generals thought, ah, oh, we got an idea here. We'll send them the monks, because these monks, they live in a community, they pray, they're godly people, they're good agriculturalists, and they'll get along just fine with the Arabs, which in fact was the case for well over 100 years. Monks and Muslims got to get along just fine, which is why I described this book when it came out as a Christian-Muslim love story, brotherly love. It's a very good primer, I think, to demonstrate on the one hand that there is theologically at least for me, hardly any difference. Uh, but I'm not a particularly a, much of a standard on these matters of theology, but I just found this is just a charming story of people who are seeking to live a godly life together. What's the title of this book? The Monks of Tiberine, Faith, Love, and Terror in Algeria. That book came out in 2002 and represented about six years of research in which I talked to the, 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 the monks actually all, seven of the monks were kidnapped in 1996. This is during a period in Algeria where the Algerians were going through their ISIS moment before ISIS had made its announcement as ISIS but in fact functionally it was, it was called the GIA they were ISIS-like in the way they thought about things and had many legitimate reasons for being unhappy with uh, the rule of the Algerian government. The French had spent about 120 years in Algeria. So France was kind of like, French was like the language of the bureaucracy, the language of government. So for a lot of Algerians, the governing bodies were like the French. So where's our independence? Where, where's our own culture? And uh, economic and other issues all played into feeding an anger towards the regime. Terrorism was very prominent for 10 years. We didn't care much about it because it was mainly French and Algerians who were killing each other. And that all calmed down, and calmed down in part because of what happened to the monks. They were kidnapped in 696, 
by the terrorists as hostages. They wanted to do a trade with uh, the government who had some of their people, and they wanted to bargain. Didn't work out. The monks were executed. Heads were cut off, put up in trees. That was such a horrible act of uh, blasphemy to the Muslims, to the Arabs. I mean, killing monks was considered to be totally unacceptable. In fact, the Quran is very explicit about showing specific reverence towards priests and monks. So here they are killing these monks. And they, uh, the, sort of the, the, the popular support for the terrorists, which existed in the beginning, disappeared. Stability was reestablished and we've had uh, 20 years of relatively stable rule in Algeria. And now today that stability is falling apart, but it's falling apart seemingly in a fairly orderly, civilized way. The Algerians are setting another kind of example. I think it's a positive one. So in the course of doing that research, I learned about this cliff face behind the monastery. It's called Abdul Qadar Rock. So one day I said, well, who, who's this guy, Abdul Qadar? And he explained to me that he was viewed as the sort of George Washington of uh, Algeria. And uh, he had been uh, sort of a freedom fighter for Algerians and represented uh, spiritual, military, poetic, diplomatic skills of all kinds. And he was, and still is today, viewed as like the founding father of the modern Algerian state. One of the things that drew me to his story was his belief system, which I learned about from a nun, a Benedictine nun, who is in Algiers in this retreat center, the Glycine. And this uh, lady came up to me one day and said, oh, Mr. Kaiser, Mr. Kaiser, I understand you're writing, you want to write a book about Emir Abdul Qadr. I said, yeah, I am. I'm starting to look into doing some research about his story. And she said, well, I have this piece of paper that I've written down some of his thoughts that I keep next to my bed. I refer to it frequently. And I said, oh, okay. And she went up and got this piece of paper. Had a uh, excerpt from his many writings, spiritual writings. And the essence of the excerpt was exactly echoed my own sort of feelings about God and religion in general. And the basic message of this excerpt, which is in here, and I won't read it, but basically is God is bigger than any religion. No religion is God. We all know God in part, and we're all ignorant of God. It was a view of the relationship between man and the divine, which I thought was rational. The finite cannot really grasp the infinite. If God is infinite beyond all understanding, then obviously we can't completely know God. It's humble and it's inclusive. Nobody's left out. So that attracted me to Abu Qatar. And, and uh, I like history and I like learning about things in the past that still matter today. The Marine Corps had a, I mean, a commandant by the name of Al Gray couple of decades ago, and Al Gray used to like to say, you want to learn something new? Read an old book. And everything you want to know about Islam, Christianity, the relationship between colonial powers and the colonialized, I think everything that happened then is happening again today, and it's been happening over and over, and this is just another version of the story of what happens when you have 
colonizers who are arrogant and contemptuous. And that's essentially the nature of, I think, uh, the colonial mentality, which is one of contempt. It may not be explicit, but it's ultimately, I'm better than you for whatever reason. Usually have to do with skin color or faith. And this plays out in the story, and it plays out in that story. And uh, it's just another way of repeating a problem that we seem to have as a race, and it would be a race of humans, I guess. But if more of us could think like some of these monks and the Amir, which is if we're all human beings and we're all God's creatures and we all accept that and we all can be humble, which is the problem, we could probably get along together a lot better, but because we seem to want to assert ourselves as superior to other groups. This demonstrates what happens when you assert that superiority and, uh, and what happens when you accept that we're all fragile and weak and sinners and need to try to be decent with each other. This is why decency is my religion. So after you did all this research, how did you get connected with the Faith and Culture Center here in Nashville? And why do you think its mission is important to our community? Uh, it was a woman by the name of uh, Maha El Ganadi. Her role in connecting me with Nashville came about because uh, I'm on the board of a family foundation, William and Mary Grieve Foundation. Grieve was my step grandfather, a Brooklyn boy. Made a lot of money in the 30s, 40s. And uh, as a member of the board, uh, I had a sort of slice of the pie to distribute grant money. In 1999, 2000, I decided that one of the things that I thought was important to focus on, thanks in large part to my year in France and actually meeting Muslims, feeling uh, totally non-threatened by Islam, and more importantly, realizing that given my own ignorance, I figured if I'm this stupid, then how stupid is the rest of the country when it comes to understanding anything about this faith? And I saw Islamophobia as a kind of another kind of Cold War type of um, mindset, demonizing a whole culture, a whole faith system, a whole chunk of humanity, and one that is very dangerous to our own welfare as a country, because if we go around uh, burning mosques and um, shooting people who we think are Muslims but are actually Sikhs or whatever. All that does is feed the narrative of the radicals who have some legit, perfectly legitimate reasons to be unhappy with the legacy of colonialism anyway. It just supports their argument, which is, hey, the West hates us. They're out to destroy our culture. They're out to eradicate Islam. That feeds the recruiting system. It's easier to recruit if Muslims are being perceived as being persecuted. It doesn't take much to me because the U.S. press essentially is a huge advertising mechanism for radicalism. And the number of people that have been killed really is irrelevant. But if it's on the front page of the New York Times, you know, they're basically advertising for the radical Muslims of being effective and scaring everybody. And in fact, they're really, it's a pinprick as far as death counts. I sort of see this as a, a way to to use this figure, this person's life story, his way of treating his enemies uh, as, as a person who doesn't have permanent enemies, a person who is essentially grounded in a spirit of reconciliation and sort of a, a humanitarian view of the world and of God's creatures, 
thought, well, here's a, after writing a book and realizing that not only were Americans ignorant, Muslims are incredibly ignorant of their own faith too, which makes it easier for them to be recruited by imams and leaders who supposedly know the Quran, know uh, what's right. I thought, well, you know, there are a lot of organizations out there that defend, you know, rights and freedom of religion and anti-racism. And I just felt that was too generic. And I wanted to focus in on the actual, the physical security issues that are caused by not understanding Muslims and Islam and being easily led astray by our own leaders who want to hype our fears of uh, Sharia law taking over, which would mean, of course, that you couldn't go to church and pray. So uh, it's to me, it's, a, it's an anti-ignorance campaign in which I, I think we've seen that people who have any sort of an open mind are influenced by new information if it comes from credible sources. And that this, this story, both stories actually, have a very uh, sobering effect on those who come, kind of came to the subject with a certain prejudice simply because all they knew about Islam was bad stuff. So it's become uh, something of a, I wouldn't call it a crusade. I mean, the fact that I've got two books written about it may give me a certain stake in having the book read, but also I'm, I'm quite confident that the more people are exposed to these stories, whatever age, whatever religion or non-religion or whatever nationality find universal validation of how how do you get along. And his one of the things about Demir that made him particularly interesting to me is his belief that the most important form of knowledge is politics, but not in the political sense of today but in the Greek sense of living together in the polis. How do you get along and live in community? And he believed that for that, you needed to draw on higher authority on the wisdom that's above. And then it basically boils down to how you treat your fellow creatures, how you view people. And if you put people into categories of good, bad, and ugly, as opposed to we're all God's creatures, respect all of God's work, particularly other human beings, but not exclusively. So the work of living together, which requires higher wisdom. As a group, we've talked a lot about leadership and looking at Ben Muir's leadership style, and specifically the idea of servant leadership, which I think goes to a lot of what you were saying about bringing people together. Um, what do you think about servant leadership? I'm sure there's good service leadership and there's bad leadership. I mean, you can lead in all kinds of ways. I think obviously this group here is exercising servant leadership in a very excellent and healing manner. But I think you could probably find leadership groups that have a more restricted focus on what it means to lead because they believe in certain forms of behavior being unacceptable and want to push a, uh, an agenda that's more political than humane. Thanks for sharing your story with us and about your worldview and your process and everything. That was great hearing all of that. Um, we're going to turn now to Matt, and we'd like to just open it up for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are and how you got through today. Yes, uh, thank you. First, I um, want to thank you for inviting me, and I want to commend you all 
one of the things that you swear is not going to happen as you get older is that you're not going to look at the younger generation as your parents looked at you and say, oh, the kids these days, you know, <laughs> not, but but you get older and then you, you find that like losing the remotes and complaining about gas prices, you also begin to worry about the younger generation and, and what direction they're taking the country, particularly for someone like me who has spent the majority of my adult life in the service of the country because I believe in it. And, and after, at, at the end of that career, you reflect on where the country is and where it's going as it is indicated by the younger generation. And you look at that as kind of a barometer for your own success. Did I spend my life defending something that's worth defending? And there are, frankly, indicators uh, that are somewhat depressing on that, on that regard. But being here with you all, listening to you, your values, seeing the initiatives that you're having to discuss these kind of things is very encouraging for me. So thank you for letting me be a part of that. And I won't yell at you to stay off my lawn. Uh, uh, or I'll at least not try to. So my, my story is, is not an uncommon one. Uh, I was raised in a military family in a Christian little C uh, environment, which is to say, mom, dad, what do we believe? Oh, we're Christians. Uh, okay, what's for dinner? You know, we didn't really get into theological discussions or, or really unpacking the dogma. It was like dogma tends to be just this is it, now shut up in color. But dad, how can three people be one? You know, that was just not a conversation we had. He just accepted that. And to John's point about our similarities being much broader than we give it credit for, I found that to be true of people's religions throughout the world. I found a lot of Muslims who are Muslims the same way that I'm a Christian. It was just, you were born into a Muslim family and this is what we believe and that's what we do. So for me, being Christian growing up meant on Sundays, you go to a different type of school where you put on a tie that, that chokes you or if it's a clip on, in my case, it scratches your neck and then you kind of muddle through some things that you don't understand and listen to people saying that shouldn't be singing. And then you have a big Sunday dinner with your family and you watch a football game and you take a nap. And as I got older and, and the, the more inquisitive part of my brain started to develop, it became of more interest to me. And that's just in the religious context. But my family was also in the military. My, my dad was career military and I was raised like a lot of people in that way. That service to the nation, particularly uniform service, is, is a higher calling. And like my faith, I just didn't question that. I never doubted, you know, when I was a little boy, I distinctly remember uh, wanting to be a Marine and a cowboy. In, in that order, those are the only two things I really, I really wanted to be. And and so when I graduated from high school, I enlisted in the Marine Corps and uh, went to um, Marine Corps recruit training, Paris Island, South Carolina, when I was 18. Did four years, enlisted, did all the things I wanted to do, got out so that I could go to college. And then my last semester of college was the fall of 2001. Uh, ancient history for some of you, uh, but for me, very, very... Uh, still very real. Uh, on September 10th, uh, I went to bed thinking that I was going to graduate in December, spend six months in Costa Rica, then go to law school in the fall and be an attorney of some kind. And September 11th happened. It changed, I think, the the landscape for, for millions and millions of people to, to this day. And so on September 12th, I, I came back in the Marine Corps for what I thought was going to be three and a half more years. And then it was just deployment after deployment after deployment. And uh, before I realized that I was closer to making it a career than I was, you know, to just using it as a stepping stone to something else. And, and um, so my career was somewhat accidental in that way. I always felt like I was just doing that as a service before I went on to do something else. And before I discovered that there were other things I wanted to do and, and what they were and how to pursue them, I was pretty close to being able to retire. So 
finished out my last couple of years in Washington, D.C. And, and had some time to reflect on 21 years of service and seven deployments and the places I'd been and the things I'd experienced to include the initial invasion of Iraq and, and, and several subsequent deployments there. Deployment to Afghanistan, where my battalion took more casualties than any other battalion in the history of that fight there. is a very, very determined enemy. In reflecting on that, I thought about what worked and what didn't work. Uh, and it occurred to me that what did not work was a reliance on superior firepower, superior technology, significantly greater financial resources. The, America has enjoyed those things since the very beginning of this conflict. And yet we haven't won. You know, and, and part of not winning is because I don't think we've had a very clear definition of what that means. But the other part is because those things are not sufficient. It's necessary and it's maybe even advantageous to, to have greater firepower, greater technology, greater money. But it hasn't been enough for us to say, okay, that was, we won. And, and so that, that led me to the question of, well, if those things aren't enough, then, then what is? And pretty quickly led me to the answer, we don't have a cultural advantage. We, we suffer from collective ignorance of what it means to be, well, really anything other than what we are. But in this context, specifically, it meant we don't know what it means to be Muslim. We don't know what it means to be Islamic, the Islamic faith, what the Quran really says, what, what the prophet really said. We don't know what it means to be a Muslim in Afghanistan compared to a Muslim in Egypt. For example, in our way of training, those are just essentially the same thing. And of course, even you could just Google the difference in very precursory glance at that question. And you can realize pretty quickly that a Muslim in Morocco you know, does not see himself or herself the same as a Muslim from India, for example. And those differences are not minor. They're substantial. And so I wrote an article about that suggesting that not that we should exclude the conventional military training that we do, but that we should add a cultural dimension, that we should place a greater emphasis on language and culture and centers of influence in the countries where we are attempting to develop relationships with people. In a, in a type of war called irregular warfare that has been called by many names, guerrilla warfare, counterinsurgency, irregular warfare, small wars, low intensity conflict. These are all just names de jour for the same thing. You know, wars in which it's not quite as clear cut as there's a bad guy, here's a good guy. As long as you kill more of the bad guys than good guys get killed, then you'll win. Think World War II, World War I, but really those are the exception. In, in the spectrum of American conflict, particularly, but, but human conflict in general, most wars are of the kind of smaller kind, the guerrilla warfare, where populations are critical. You know, if you're fighting an enemy-centric war, you can focus on defeating the enemy. But in these types of wars, it's the population that matters. And so in fighting a population-centric war, how do we do that without knowing anything about the population? Well, you can't. And, and the result is what we've seen in the last 18 years, where with no disrespect to the service of the men and women uh, who've given a lot to the cause, if I were to say that we go to these places and we just basically walk around until we bump into somebody who's willing to fight us and then we fight them, there would be very little in the last 18 years to refute that. And that's what it looks like from the outside looking in. And I can tell you that's what it feels like from the inside as well. And so I wrote an article saying that we need to do a better job of cultural education, that in addition to, not not except from, you know, not, not excluded from, but in addition to the military training we do, we, we need to do a better job of understanding how to develop relationships, how to build rapport that leads to trust, that leads to relationships. 
And instead of doing things like measuring our effectiveness by how many bad guys we've killed, we should measure our effectiveness by how much violence we've reduced. Because winning is not shooting somebody first who's shooting at you. Winning is when nobody's shooting at you because they trust you. Winning is not finding roadside bombs before they detonate. It's not developing technology that, that finds IEDs in the road before they, they explode. It's when people aren't putting IEDs in the ground anymore because they'd rather work with you. And for them to get to that point, they have to have some kind of rapport, and that leads to trust, and that leads to relationships. So how do you do that? I wrote an article about that, suggesting that we need more emphasis on, on cultural development within the Department of Defense, and particularly the Marine Corps. And, and, and not just superficial attention, but, but a genuine commitment to cultural understanding as it pertains to these types of conflicts. I published that article in a, in a forum called the Marine Corps Gazette, which is a professional forum that is read and circulated by very few non-Marines. But one of them is, is here next to me, uh, John Kaiser, and he subscribes to the Marine Corps Gazette, and he read that article, and he contacted me, and I was very happy to meet with him at his request and discuss some of these ideas and concepts and, and found in him a kindred spirit who believed that, paraphrase Maya Angelou, that we are more alike than we are unalike throughout the world. And, and I shared with John a story that I'll share with you that was pivotal for me, that in Afghanistan during that especially bloody deployment, where we started to make progress is where we changed the conversation. We changed the talking points that I had with, with people in the village. I was the commanding officer and would frequently meet with people in the village. And up to when I first got there, it had been the practice that when you're speaking to any group of people, you wear a helmet, you wear sunglasses, you wear gloves, you wear body armor, you have a weapon on you at all times. Of course, this presents a very threatening attitude, and it's difficult with that posture to sit across the table from someone and say, I come in peace, and I'm your friend, and work with me, and you're looking every bit of a very futuristic kind of RoboCop you know, kind of mentality. And so I thought, you know, what we're doing is not working. All the talking points that we have and all of the... Um, the advantages we have, it's not its not turning any corners. People are still fighting us. They're still putting bombs in the road. They're still ambushing us. They're still shooting at us. They're still working with the Taliban more than us. Let's try something new. And I changed all the talking points, and I took off my helmet and my, and my sunglasses and my body armor, and I put down my weapon. And this was, of course, to, to the chagrin and to the shock of, of several people in, you know, in my company and, and in my chain of command. We're very alarmed by that. And, and instead of telling the people that they've gathered with us, you know, you must do this and you will do that. And I started just by reflecting on our, the things we had in common. You are men. And this was a group of all men, but you're men, I'm a man. You're warriors, we're warriors. You're husbands, I'm a husband. You're a father, I'm a father. You're men of the book, I'm a man of the book. What we have in common is much greater than what we don't. And, and I could tell in their faces and in their body language and their responsiveness, this was finally starting to resonate with them because they came there expecting to be lectured about the, you know, the joys of cooperating with Americans and, and how evil the Taliban is. And, and there we were appealing to them on a different level. And, and that's when we turned the corner. And that it was not lost on me that that, that was a significant moment in, in my view of, of how to engage in these types of conflicts. And so that was really the, that informed the article that I wrote. I, I advocated in that article, uh, recruiting people from different countries, bringing them to America, training them, and then bringing them back to those countries and, and asking them to advise us on how to engage mm -hmm. those populations. You know, what really matters to them? What's going to work for them? 
John might be the only person who read that that agreed. A lot of Marines uh, pushed back against that idea. But in John's agreement, so we found some common ground and, and, and I've been working with him on, on similar lines since then. And, and he asked me to come on in a more permanent way to the Abdel Qadr project, which was part of the initial conversation. He, he turned me on to this guy, Amir Abdel Qadr, you know, and I was embarrassed to say I, I, I didn't know about him. But as I studied him, I learned that he was not just a figure to, to emulate from a um, military standpoint as a tactician and as an insurgent, but also from a humanitarian and theological standpoint as, as a man who uniquely, there's certainly no, no shortage of men and women in history and in the world today that, that will talk a big game when it comes to their faith. But here's a guy who lived and in the end, it's it's what we do that matters, not what we say. And, and rare is the example of someone who who says, I do believe in loving all people and treating them humanely, and then actually does go out and love all people and treat them humanely. And so that inspired me to get more involved. And as I gave up the uniform and, and moved on, my desire to find something noble to fight for and on behalf of didn't go away. And, and so this is my fight now. Much less kinetic, uh, a lot safer, yeah. but I think in, in many ways a lot more important um, because I think it's, you know, step by step, little by little, having these kind of conversations and reaching people and talking about these themes, I, I think will ultimately do more for the conflicts abroad than, than any uh, technology or, or weapon can do. At least that's my, that's my belief and that's my hope. What was some of the the pushback that you got from that article, like what specifically, like you said that John was kind of in agreement with your, and your um, sentiment there, but what was some of the things that people, I guess, didn't like about that? A lot of pushback, but really what it came down to was different is strange, and therefore it's a threat. We can't incur the national security threat that would, that would present itself by bringing in foreign nationals and making them American citizens. And of course, that's that's demonstrably false. Yeah. But so powerful is the concept of otherism. So powerful is the human condition that we need to have an enemy. We need to create these walls between ourselves and others and then make them the bad people. That even in the face of, of really objective evidence, it, it was still received negatively. And, and I'll give you an example. The it's a program called MAVNI, or Military Accessions Vital to National Interest. Are you familiar with this program? I'm not. Uh, it was something that the Department of Defense did that I discovered. That it's a horrible feeling to have a great idea and do a lot of work to develop it, only to discover that somebody else has had this idea years uh-huh. before. Right? Oh, yeah. so, and, and I learned that lesson the hard way years ago. But in, in developing this idea about incorporating more culture in, into our armed forces as a matter of enhancing our security, I found this program that the Department of Defense did called, again, Military Accessions Vital to national interest. And this was a program, just like it says, we would recruit people from all over the world who had a skill set, whether it's in agriculture or architecture or theology or language, that we identified as something that was a a critical gap in the Department of Defense personnel capabilities. And we would recruit them. And more than 10,000 people were recruited and brought into the Department of Defense. Most of them went into communities like special forces. Some of them went into medical communities. Very telling is that not one of them ever breached security. Not one of them ever manifested themselves as a security threat, as a foreign agent, you know, as this sort of lurking menace that everybody thinks is hiding behind, you know, everybody who's dressed differently or every different language accent, you know, there must be a threat there. And that program, I think, is indicative of what we could do. And it's since been suspended for reasons that I I would guess, I don't know the official reason, but I would guess have a lot to do with these lingering and antiquated but but still um, pervasive ideas that different is wrong 
and wrong is the, or different is different. And that means it's the enemy and we must treat it as such. And so that was the nature of the feedback. Well, you can't go to Iraq and recruit a bunch of uh, Iraqis to go through Marine Corps recruit training and then incorporate them into Marine units that will be working in Iraq. You just you can't do that. It would be a huge security threat. That's false. You know, that's, that's false. And having worked side by side with Iraqis who gave every ounce that they had to give up to and including their own lives for a country they'd never even been to just because they believed in it. They believed in the idea of a nation they, they had never even visited. That, that they would be rejected just out of hand. And these, of course, were the type of people that I was thinking of in this program. And they're all over the world. I mean, because despite America's volatile and sometimes problematic relationships with, with foreigners and refugees throughout the world, most people still see the Amer- America very favorably. And one of the things that compelled me to be involved in this is that one of my interpreters that worked for me in Afghanistan was uh, had been working there for five years, working British Special Forces and American Special Forces and American Marines for years and years, just putting himself and his family on you know, life on the line at a place where the threat is real. And when the Taliban says, they're, don't do this or we'll kill you, that's, that's not an empty threat. They mean it. And yet, despite that, he, you know, shoulder to shoulder with, with Americans and our allies, he, he, as a non-combatant, braved every fight that I was in, every patrol that I was on. He's right there next to me and fought very hard to come to the United States, overcame the many obstacles in that path and, and got here. And he lives in Texas now and he, and he drives a truck and he's, he's happy. You know, he thinks, you know, I can't have a bad day here. But he does tell me how he's treated with contempt, with suspicion, because he's Muslim, because he has darker skin, because he's from Afghanistan. And I just think that is unacceptable to me that that a guy who has done more for America than 99.9% of Americans who will never know what it's like to fear for their life, who will never know what it's like to fight for an idea. I mean, I think the only Americans that, that fought for an America that they hadn't yet discovered yet were our founding fathers, right? Who, who just believed in the concept of America before it was even a real thing. And we honor them. We name buildings after them. And, and rightfully, we do. This is the same kind of guy that in the 21st century is fighting for a country that he doesn't know personally. He just believes in its ideas. That he would fight to get here and be treated with anything but the respect that he's earned is just unacceptable to me. So that was some of the pushback was it's foreign and it presents a security threat. Therefore, we can't have it. And I, I think also it's ironic because by having that, I, I think that idea is itself a security threat. You know, when, when people in the world that are different than us see the way we treat them, they're less likely to work with us. And when we go to those countries and our, our reputation for Islamophobia or anti-fill-in-the-blank precedes us, it's hard to develop the relationships that you need to have that I, refer- that I referenced earlier that are necessary in these types of conflicts. And, be, and, and also Muslims and, and other people in these communities in the United States are less likely to join the military. Today, it's an all-volunteer force, and the active duty consists of less than one-half of 1% of Americans, 45% of whom come from just seven states. The the other 55% of the Department of Defense comes from the other 43 states combined. That's a very serious issue. When when the military is becoming more and more homogenous, and, and not surprisingly, those seven states are all states that have the greatest number of military bases in them, which indicates that this is the military has become a family business. We're not getting the greatest leaders from the Muslim community in America. We're not getting necessarily the greatest leaders from traditionally, you know, minority communities. We're, we're getting the same type of people. Now, the military is really worried about that, but I don't think they see the connection between that problem of getting diverse leadership from all communities in America 
and their their treatment of, of, of foreigners abroad. And I do see that connection. I see it as a security issue. Can you explain a little bit more about your role with the Abdul Qadir Education Project? I'm the executive director, mm-hmm. and what that means can, can vary depending on uh, one day to the next. But essentially, I'm responsible for working with other members of the board to coordinate a strategy to uh, implement education at, at every level of education, implement curriculum, rather, at every level of education, uh, to, to connect people across uh, centuries, across cultures, to recover lost history, to bring into a mainstream educational format something that has been almost completely lost in the life of the emir and, and what he means in the context of military history, what he means in the context of, of social progress, of humane treatment, of theology. Uh, his life example is is relevant to several different fields of study. And, and I think that as the executive director, it's my responsibility to try to look for inroads in education that, that, can, that can bring the emir's life to the forefront and, and make it a bigger part of the discussion and the narrative surrounding those, those topics. Your narratives about how you mentioned the great work for politics and different people working and living together in harmony, and your emphasis on the importance of relationship and national security, and also what's at stake in humanity. And what do you think prevents sometimes people from valuing diversity and otherness? And what are your biggest takeaways on how we can work in our everyday lives to overcome that? I think it starts in a way with your family, how you brought up what you're exposed to as a kid. Your family's attitudes are playing a big role. And I think that other conditioning elements, whether it's you know the institutions you go to later on in life, uh, experiences you have. I mean, I, for me, I've, I've just never considered otherness particularly threatening. In fact, it's the opposite. I feel sameness is what's threatening. You know, why do you want to live a life hanging out with the same people as you? Thinking the same way, maybe thinking differently, but still a milieu that doesn't challenge your, or even open open the windows a little more than what um, of this experience, which is these sort of closed shops. And I think probably the biggest, uh, the biggest obstacle is ego and pride and ignorance Humility is a key to getting along with people, and I think without being humble, you know, you're going to have trouble getting along with others. Christian Chergey was the uh, superior of that uh, group of monks. He used to say that without humility, there can be no love. And I think what he says is ultimately saying that if we if we think we're better than somebody else, we can't really love another person. Humility is acknowledging that, in fact, anyone could be a better person. Maybe not a better chess player, a better tennis player, but the qualities that you have as an individual, I don't know what they are. You have a different skin color, different sex, different whatever, but I'd be safer just assuming that you're a better person than I am. I'm more likely to be humble, treat you with respect, and then we turn out to be different than what I expected. That's that's maybe a bad surprise, but just being respectful. I knew John was going to say humility and respect, uh, and I echo those in, entirely. But because I knew he was going to touch on them, my my answer I think would be empathy. 
But to begin with, why do people persist in otherizing? Why do, why do they persist in ignorance and fear and the hate that radiates from that? And I think it begins with the human condition. We want to say, oh, I don't see gender, I don't see race, I don't see, but, but of course we do. That's, that's lying to ourselves. We all have a bias, whether it's subconscious or implicit. It is there. In fact, Harvard did a fantastic study and it's still online called the Implicit Bias mm-hmm. Study. Are you familiar yeah, with yeah, this? Yeah. And, it, and they do a great job of telling you up front as you, as you go through that quiz and test yourself of saying you're not bad because you have a bias. You're bad if you know you have a bias and then you act on that bias. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing, that's, that's not Harvard speak. But I thought that was illuminating because we all want to convince ourselves that we've just transcended human nature. We, we haven't. And there is a purpose, a primitive purpose for discrimination because you discriminate between what you consider to be a threat and not a threat. And you err on the side of discriminating things, treating things as a threat because in a primitive context, you can only get that wrong once. You know, so anything that seems strange to you or slightly out of the norm, what's comfortable for you, you're going to treat with a little bit of, of bias and a little bit of standoffish because that resonates with our base DNA, which is survival, preservation of ourselves. And uh, so, so I think it begins with the human condition and then it's aggravated by our circumstances, which, which none of us are, you know, can control. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. We're born where we're born. We're born into the families that we're born into. And, and most places around the world, whether they do it knowingly or not, encourage some of the divisiveness across fill-in-the-blank lines. It can be orientation, it can be gender, it can be religion, nationality. There's just no shortage of things, unfortunately, by which we divide ourselves. And the circumstances in which we're raised kind of reinforce that. And then it's significantly aggravated by extreme acts. So I think a lot of Americans before 9-11 were somewhat agnostic about Muslims. And it's why it's funny to me when people say, well, how can we live with Muslims? Well, you don't need a future. You don't need a crystal ball to see that. You need a history book because we've been living with Muslims peacefully in this country for many years. There's 5 million Muslims or so in the United States. There's 1.8 billion in the world. I mean, the oldest mosque in existence in the United States is in a small town in Iowa, which which uh, couldn't be any more stereotypical American. Uh, and they're doing just fine. You know, they, that community loves their, their, their Muslim neighbors. And, and uh, so the answers are there. But because that's not extreme. It doesn't necessarily get the same salacious attention that extreme acts do. And something that's, that's in this book that John referred me to and something that I discussed last night in a similar group was the idea that we cannot allow extremists in our group to define other groups based on their extremists. But that's exactly what we do, right? We, we allow radical extreme Christians to define all of Islam, all 1.8 billion members of, of that religion, by the extreme radical acts of people within that group. And then that comes right back on us. And they define Christians by the extreme radical acts of Christians. And, or, or it doesn't even have to be those, that, that particular dichotomy. It can be you know, other, other opposing groups. And so you start with human condition. You, you just develop by circumstances you're growing up in. And then you confront these extremists. And it's pretty easy to get pretty comfortable in your biases getting out of that though. So how is that overcome? John mentioned respect and humility. I think that's absolutely right. And I would add to that empathy, subtlety, patience, and education. Empathy that says it's important for me to know where you're coming from. Um, Before I judge you, why is this person like that? Because I expect you to give me that same courtesy. You know, understand that I was raised in the way that I was raised so that if I say something that's offensive to you, it's not necessarily offensive 
maybe if, if you had the empathy to say, well, why do, you, why do you use that particular word? Why do you say it that way? You'll find that I don't mean anything by it. And we could have now, by doing that, disarmed the conflict before it even really got off the ground. But that requires empathy. Twin sister, I, I think, of humility. Subtlety. We don't need to just expect that, and, and uh, Wood and I were talking about this earlier today, and there's, there's a saying in, in Urdu that I, I will not offend your, your listeners that speak Urdu by attempting in that language, but in English it translates roughly to a, a river is formed drop by drop, meaning you can't expect to wake up and decide, you know what, I'm tired of the hate in the world, I'm going to do this thing, and by tomorrow, you know, it'll be gone. We're going to pass this legislation or we're going to we're going to do this thing. We're going to have this hashtag and we're going to have this different color ribbon for awareness. And, you know, by the end of the week, everybody will just love each other. That's not going to happen. It's much more subtle than that. Uh, like the changing of a season. And, and you look at progress over the last century. It's embarrassing in points uh, to know where we came from. But also in looking back on the things that we've changed, it's, it's something that we should be proud of as humanity because Today, we can point out all the places that we still need to go, the progress that we need to make. But relative to even 10 years ago, we, we've, we've done great things. And so change is very subtle. And that uh, is, is a segue into, I think, what the next thing that overcomes it, which is patience. You have to acknowledge that sometimes this is as satisfying as progress is going to be. This conversation between you four and us three and, and what radiates from that and, and that planting of a seed may take a generation to blossom. But I may tell my 10-year-old son about a conversation I had with you today that affects the way he interacts with someone from a Muslim community 15 years from now in Indonesia. And then that relationship might build into something very meaningful to both of our countries and our communities. And it started from, you know, inadvertently, without us knowing from this, what seems to be innocuous kind of conversation. And so, but you have to have the patience to take that, that longer view. And then finally, I think education. I, I think hate is based on ignorance, which comes from fear. And, and the only way that's, the only thing that's ever overcome that is, is education. And I don't mean just in the classroom, that, that too, but also travel, uh, getting outside of your city, of your state, of your region, and, and going places and meeting people, because that's when you can stop looking at Gallup polls and Fox News and CNN to tell you what the country is thinking, because then you, at that point, have your own experience. Say, so, you know, I don't, I don't really care what Gallup says about Muslims in America. I have traveled to Muslim countries and met them on my own, and I am confident in saying that they are just as good a people as any other group, and that's been my experience. And so education, formally in the classroom and informally through experience and, and travel, I think is, is, the, is the final piece that I would say overcomes that, that otherizing. No shouting. Yeah. A word softly spoken turns away wrath. How can you really get angry with people if they don't raise their voice? If I talk gently and softly, we can disagree much more easily if we're shouting at each other. The Bible says so. The Quran says so. So it must be true. <laughs> <laughs> and my experience says so. You know, when people aren't shouting at each other, they can actually solve problems. how can you educate them? Because I, I assume that they are educated enough. They are leaders of mm-hmm. foundations. And 
So just wanted to kind of get some insight on like from the higher level, how, how can you approach them with the cultural awareness knowledge? It's, it's a great question and, and one I wish I had a step-by-step solution for, you know, do these things in this order and we can overcome that. I don't have that and I don't believe that anyone does. Uh, what I do think is that you just have to address it where you see it. I know that Dr. Martin Luther King said it, I don't know if he originated it, but the idea that the, the time to, to address injustice is always right now. So when I say patience and subtlety, I don't mean pretend that it's not there. And, and just ignore it and say, oh, no, I'm just being patient. That's not what I mean. I, I think when we as individuals, and maybe this is the salient point that I like to make, when we as individuals live the life of justice, of, of standing up where we see it, where we have the opportunity, I think we do more than when we sit back on our social media and say, well, this is what everybody should do. We attended an event last night called Seat at the Table. Are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah, we've been to that. And Dawood and I were talking today about the, the significance of that is, is that it's not an attempt to make sweeping change at that huge level. It's just a grassroots level engagement where people are living their values, not just speaking or preaching their values. And so I think in, in response to how do you get people to change that? Well, in a representative democracy, you get the government to change when you get the people to change. If enough people change, if enough people speak out against hateful narratives, speaking facts, not just truth, but merging you know, the facts with incorporating that into the narrative and, and avoiding, like John said, giving into your emotions, giving into your, in many cases, understandable desire to lose your temper or tendency to lose your temper and scream and yell and say hurtful things on a personal level. Instead of doing that, just addressing. You know, so when people say, well, you know, Muslims are terrorists. Okay, well, how about the fact that these things that indicate they're not? That Muslims show that they're, you know, Muslim Americans show a greater level of loyalty to their country than non-Muslim Americans. Are you familiar with that poll, you know, taken by Gallup in 2017? And, you know, just being prepared with those facts. I think that activism at the grassroots level uh, is, is important in that. And, and I think just, again, living your values as an individual whenever you have the opportunity. I had to confess to Dawood today, a particularly embarrassing moment, you know, when I was much younger. And it wasn't just one opportunity, it was several times when peers of mine would say or do things that were wholly inappropriate. You know, they would say racist things or sexist things. And I'm embarrassed to say that when I had the chance to say, that's not right, you know, and stand up and do what I felt like was the right thing, I didn't. And and that's embarrassing, but I'm somewhat comforted by the fact that I know that's more common than, than not. I think there are people from every group who allow biases within their group to be expressed without challenging them. So it doesn't just start, I think, with confronting institutions uh, and confronting policies. Uh, For me, it starts with confronting my family members at the Thanksgiving table. And when they say something that's inherently racist or, or Islamophobic, challenging them gently in a spirit of love, understanding that there's a reason they think that, but then you're correcting that. And I think if you do that and everybody does that, the river is formed, so to speak, to follow the analogy. And then you'll start to see people that are elected, as we already are seeing, a record number of minorities elected to this recent Congress, a record number of females. That, I think, is the change that occurs never never quite fast enough for anybody who's, who's attuned to justice and is hungry for it. But it is happening. And I think it will continue to happen to, to make sure it does. I think this is important and, and just living your values at the individual level. I remember asking a Moroccan boy 
about your age when I was reviewing the book. And I was, you know, what is this one all about? And I asked this guy, I said, well, what is, what's the essence of Islam? Well, there's many Islams as there are forms of ways of making couscous. And uh, of course, there are some underlying values. But whenever people say Muslims are this or Germans are that or Jews are this or Mexicans are that, I mean, to me, that just disqualifies the person for any kind of intelligent conversation when you... And I'll say to people, I'll go, well, what do they think in France about this? Well, what do you mean, which France? What do the Americans think about this? Well, which Americans? You know, we do that quite frequently, you know, as if, you know, there's just this group think and everybody thinks the light is the same about things. There's a saying of uh, one of the chief justices, in order to understand, you have to differentiate. In order to differentiate, you have to understand. And I don't think we're good at differentiating. And we're not good at understanding. And I think that's one of the reasons we have a lot of problems. We just, we're too lazy to try to actually think deeply. And maybe we don't have time. So you got to pick your subjects. It's like, where am I going to try to dig in and learn something that'll make me a, a more effective person in my line of work? Laziness, I think, is a big problem. What do you think? What are you, what, what's your big, would you have a specific takeaway from reading the book or a couple of takeaways to, to pop out? What did you get out of reading? So for me, um, I think my biggest take, sorry if I was interrupting, okay. Um, my biggest takeaway was just the, the emphasis on in his upbringing of education being important and of coexisting and cohabitating with all these different cultures and peoples when he had this education where he would go to a location and live amongst people who were different from him and kind of that outlook and shaping who he became as a leader, both political leader, military leader, and just how he treated like prisoners of war and how humanely he was in collaborating with people who were different from him. I would say, like most leaders that have made a significant impact, he was ahead of his time mm-hmm. in terms of how he interacted with others. And as I'm starting into my young adulthood, I feel I've seen some of the people that I respect the most are really self-aware. And so from being self-aware, they don't project their insecurities or inaptitudes onto other people. And that's what I saw some of his values as, as valuing the diversity of those around him and incorporating his own moral beliefs into how he treated them and also accepted their differences and how they viewed the world. And I like the quote that you pulled out about like how can we as finite beings understand an infinite God? And I think to truly live that is something that's really admirable. Um, some of my takeaways were that the fact that um, we took the time to actually understand people, like you were mentioning, having empathy, not just, you know, jumping into the conclusion that there are enemies, but instead he had, like, welcomes allies, actually welcomed them to his home, like, his actual home for safe things. So, I mean, his leadership was very unique. Um, I didn't know about him until I joined the program, and I feel like he it represents love, peace, and there's anything you can describe as a great leader, and so I don't think that's represented in this book. Actually, he wasn't ahead of his time. The times were behind because his way of thinking was rooted in the in the philosophy of Abdul Qadir al Jilani, who was basically an Iranian today, who was preaching in the 12th century during the Crusades. It was an obligation of Muslims 
to love Christians, to pray for Christians as well as for Muslims and pray. So it's a, it's a universalism tradition that he's a part of that has roots. It's just that with the secularization of, of uh, uh, particularly the, the, the Western world, but the Arab world too has been secularized and that's part of the, the tension and the resistance. It's, it's just a larger version of what's happening in our own country. I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't think, I don't think a lot of people in Washington have a clue as to how alienated a lot of Americans are, which is why Trump surprised everybody. Because Trump, even though in many ways he's a sort of a horrible kind of person to have as a leader, and, and he's divisive, and you can go through a whole list of things about him that are pretty undesirable. But the fact is, he had more insight into the the unhappiness of a large chunk of America than anybody in Washington. And he, he gets it, he exploits it, and he uses it, I think, in a way that's not helpful, but he, he's got a vision of where his support is, and it's not from bigots. There are bigots who support him, no question about it. But I have a lot of friends in Rappahannock County who are farmers and construction workers, and, and there's a whole list of resentments that they have. And some of it has to do with illegal immigration and all kinds of issues. But it's basically, you know, my life hasn't improved in the last, you know, 20 years. Why are all these rich people, you know, getting rich and I'm not even, and I'm getting poor. So I think he's, you know, he's got a sensibility. And then you get the whole uh, movement of uh, Rod Dreher. But it's basically the Benedictine monks in this country who are trying to actually come up with another a kind of a millet system of living together. Uh, you know, the Turks were very advanced, I think, in the way they dealt with diversity. They, they had this, the millet system where each ethnic group or religious group basically lives in their own section of town and they had to live by their own rules and they solved their problems within the context of their culture. You know, he's got a following of people. Well, maybe we can find enclaves in America where People want to live as Baptists or live as Mormons. Or, I mean, actually, the Mormons have sort of done that in, in Utah. Anyway, I think the schism going forward is actually going to be a secular versus, the term religious I have trouble with, but it's a secularizing. What, what's the, uh, what is the book, Hebrews? Natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, nor can he receive them, because to him, their foolishness. So I think there's a, the sort of Eastern establishment are increasingly made up of people who kind of mock believers or who are overly influenced by the worst elements maybe in the religious community. But I think there's a lot more trouble going on in this country than is recognized. Do you agree with that? I agree with that. How about you guys? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's true. But I think that speaking to biblical reference to what we were talking earlier is the human condition. Natural man can't receive. That's First Corinthians two fourteen, by the way. And I only know that because I looked it up. I, don't know. <laughs> I know. So I saw you sneaking. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a disclaimer. I looked at it because I wanted to understand it, but it's. It's, it's indicative of what we were saying earlier about the human condition. It's flawed. 
all of us equally flawed. We, we have biases. We, we have intellectual blocks that prevent us from seeing even what's good for ourselves. You know, that explains a lot of things. It explains, you know, all of us know that diet and exercise and moderation are the key to a healthy life. And every single one of us will do something that violates all of those common sense things probably before the day is over. Uh, as I sit here thinking about cheeseburgers at, uh, at the airport. And it's like that on a much more important scale, too. It's, you know, we can't receive the spirit of God, you know, the spirit of God being love and, and empathy and humility and, and acceptance of others and forgiveness. You know, these are not things that come naturally to us. I mean, anybody who doesn't think that humans are inherently selfish has never had kids. You know, a, a child is born and they don't care about anything except their needs. And they're conditioned, uh, theoretically and hopefully, to be more aware of what other people want and need. And if there are other people in the world besides you that uh, don't care that you're hungry or that you're tired and that you can't just throw a tantrum every time that you have an immediate need that's not being met. But we're conditioned not to do that. And that's, on a, I think, a more spiritual sense, that's the effect of faith when it's at its best is we say, I don't want to forgive this person, but my faith tells me that I must. And so I will. You know, I don't want to love this person, but my faith tells me that I must, and so I will. But that's not a natural human thing at all. That's that's the work of, of real faith. And, and John mentioned last night in our seat at the table thing is that it's very easy and common and understandable for people to look at the damage that religion has done throughout the ages and say, it's not a force for good. It's a compelling argument. Millions and millions and millions of people have been victimized in the name of religion. But you can't give it that grade without also balancing that against the things that have been done in the name of religion that are just um, just almost short of miraculous. Uh, the humanitarian aid, the, the charity that goes out, and that's also coming from religion. So the idea, I think, is to appeal to that and to practice that at an individual level uh, while doing the best you can. You know, we tell our kids when they have two children, 10 and 13, and they're at an age where they're talking about what they're going to do when they grow up. We're very... We're very clear not to try to direct them in any specific way, but just to say that you were born with strengths that other people don't have and weaknesses, and we want you to use your strengths to help others, and we want you to be honest about your weaknesses and continue to work on them. And if you do that, then, then your life will be, we'll, we'll be proud of you, but more, more important, then your life will be more likely to be content and fulfilling. I mean, you don't pound into your kids the idea that they should show up on time? Uh, it would be, be a waste of time, I think. It would be a waste of my time. Yeah, baby steps. Uh, punctuality is uh, next level. It's an interesting subject because I do think parents do have an obligation to set standards, declare certain rules, or whether you, how you enforce them and how you implement them, I think, is different. You must have guidelines, all right? What are we going to do when we grow up? I, I, I don't want them to think I need to make this much money or I need to have this particular job because of its prestige, but rather just the idea that you're a servant, that you have been equipped with skills and, and strengths that are designed to potentially help other people, and we want you to use those, you know, those privileges to help other people and, and be honest about your weaknesses and work on them. That's all. It doesn't mean they can do whatever they want around the house, though. I tend to think that anything you do well is serving other people, whether it's being a good plumber or a mechanic or a lawyer. You know, I mean, just doing your job is a service, even if you're being paid well for it, in which case you particularly expect a high level of performance. Thank you so much for your time. Can you let us know where can we find out more about your 
curriculum development and that's yeah. Amir Abdelkader Foundation. Could you say it aloud? www.abdelkaderproject.org A-B-D-E-L-K-A-D-E-R project.org is the website and then I've got um, I'm just matt at abdelkaderproject.org 